This week on the Back Table Podcast. You should probably get comfortable doing some of these sort of flexion angiograms. Mm. You know, we don't routinely do that yeah. unless we're treating popliteal artery aneurysms. Funny, every time you treat a popliteal artery aneurysm, you do this to see where to lend your grafts and make sure you don't have any kinking. But we don't do it for an atherosclerotic case. So it's not a bad idea until you get comfortable with these things and understand your patient and where that compression is occurring. After you put that stent, you know, go ahead, do that flexion uh, angiogram. And you might learn something really valuable in terms of, you know, whether you have enough metal, you need more metal, you need less metal, you know, and how you can optimize your results. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Backtable, your source for all things endovascular and more. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on any platform like Spotify or even our website, backtable.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn and keep up with the latest updates and give us feedback through comments. This episode is sponsored by Varian Medical and the Biomimics 3D Vascular Stent System. The Biomimics 3D Stent is intended for the treatment of peripheral arterial disease in the femoral popliteal arteries. The Biomimics 3D Stent has a unique 3D helical geometry which enables the stent to shorten with the vessel, improving its biomechanical compatibility and reducing the risk of stent fracture and trauma to the vessel. Varian has amassed a significant body of clinical evidence that supports the hypothesis that Biomimics 3D's helical design impacts outcomes and demonstrates superior, long-lasting clinical results in this challenging segment. Learn more at varianmed.com. I'm Sabine as your host today, and I'd like to welcome Dr. John Runback, an interventional radiologist from American Endovascular and Amputation Prevention in Teaneck, New Jersey. Welcome, John. Thank you, Sabine. A pleasure to be here. Absolutely. I mean, we're excited to have you on the show. I mean, today we're going to talk about a real tough spot to treat that dreaded distal femoral popliteal segment. It's a challenge. It's a challenge for many reasons, which we're going to go into. Um, but before that, let's have our listeners get to know you a little bit better. Um, how'd you end up in New Jersey? And, and tell us a little bit more about American Endovascular. Sure. Well, first of all, shout out to you, your new dad. So congratulations on that. So thank you. Hey, thank our you. Our listeners yes. should know about that. So <laughs> you've uh, taken time out of your new family to do this, which is amazing. We're getting discharged today, actually. So I came back to re record and coming back here. <laughs> okay. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, yeah. So uh, I'm an interventional radiologist for 30 years now. Hard to believe. Time goes quickly. And uh, I've always been very active in peripheral arterial disease. You know, I tell the story that when I started doing this, there were very few people uh, other than IRs who were doing PAD. And, uh, you know, we've sort of developed a lot of skill set. I've seen a lot of things change over the years, but, you know, certainly it's exciting time to be practicing now. With American endovascular and amputation prevention, we focus really on the critical limb ischemia population. It's probably 70% of what we treat. But inherent to that and relevant to today's talk, there's a lot of femoral popliteal disease. Our patients, and probably much like yours, tend to be the most complex patients. Patients with chronic kidney disease, diabetes, uh, heavy smoking, and other patterns, which are associated with calcification, long segment occlusions, and the like. So that's what we're treating on an everyday basis. It's a real challenge, but it's it's fun. And uh, like you, we've been getting some pretty remarkable results, which is helpful in some of these new technologies. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the new technologies have helped us a ton. I mean, and you know, we'll agree that just angioplasty alone now, I mean, in that segment, is probably not durable. Yeah. You know, I, I think you're going to get to this, but, you know, with the advent of the drug-coated balloons and drug delivery uh, technology, there was this whole idea of leave nothing behind. 
Yep. And I'm sure we have a chance to talk about that. <laughs> I'm not sure I was ever completely on board with that, yeah. uh, nor did it ever completely make sense. And of course, if you even look at the drug code bloom data and the long lesions, 40% or more of those patients need scaffolds anyway. Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah. So what, what makes, I mean, the pathophys of FEMPOP, that, that whole distal FEMPOP area, what, what makes this area so tough? Why, why can't I just do a POBA there and, and call it a day uh, and, and do that? Yeah. Well, yeah, you're probably familiar with the biomechanics of the you know, femoropopatial artery across the adductor canal. It's really unique. And we've all seen those really nice pictures with patients with their knees bent. And, uh, you know, you can get a sense of the torsional and, and the compressive and the elongation of the forces. It's a very dynamic part of the artery. But they've actually done some studies and you get compressive forces uh, right mm. across the adductor canal and just below that up to 15 or 20 percent compression of the artery foreshortening of the artery. And if you think about it, this has mm. always been my feeling, traditional slotted nitinol tubes are rigid stents. They can't foreshorten. They can't you know, rotate in response to those physiologic stresses. And therefore, they're inherently provocative. They can never yeah. endothelialize well. And they're always leading to this you know, activation of the uh, resonotic cascade. Hmm. Okay. You know, without a stent, you know, when, when, you, when we're doing our angio initially, you know, almost at Hunter's Canal, there's some sort of, you know, it could be a mild stenosis or a really severe stenosis. I mean, is the artery just subjective, subjected to a ton of injury during someone's life susceptible to PAD? Like, wh why do you always see it? I I've always wondered, like, what's going on right there? Yeah. You know, especially since if you look at patients with atherosclerosis, often there's no rhyme or reason why they have disease, where they have it. But yeah, that's a relatively constant. That that's the location where you get disease. And for S SFA CTOs, that's the point most of the time of reconstitution, yep. uh -huh. right? You know, indicating that's where the culprit lesion is. I think one is crossing the adductor magnus and adductor canal, and you know, that's some external forces. So there's probably some you know, factors like that, some uh, you know, external constraint on the vessel. But more importantly, like I said, that's the most physiologic or biomechanically dynamic location in the SFA. Okay. And therefore, it's subject to these twists and turns and compression that you just don't see elsewhere in the SFA. As yeah. you get disease, that's where you're going to get plaque rupture. And that's where you get you know, unstable atherosclerosis. That's where you're going to get occlusions. Yeah. You know, what's funny is is when I started, you know, delving in PAD, um, and I used to think that the main flexion, you would just think kind of logically that the main flexion is right behind the knee joint, like where you see the femur and the tibia, like you think that's the flexion point, but it's not really. It's a whole long segment that's going through twisting, movement, compression, like you mentioned, right? Where, where, uh, where and other than Hunter's Canal, what parts of the distal femoropopageal segment are affected? Is it all of it or the distal yeah, end or, yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, pretty much, you know, starting at or just above the ductal canal and extends down into that P1 segment. And interestingly, and this was, you know, uh, uh, new to me in a sense, who's looked at this more recently, the predominant force is a compressive force. Not Dominant so is compression. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's not artery, bending. It's not flexing. It's compression. All right. And so it's really, that artery is really foreshortening. And to do mm -hmm. that, if you look at it, you know, the artery kind of uh, spins, it rotates, it kind of, you know, gets this wavy configuration to allow that foreshortening. Got Imagine it. a rigid stent in a wavy yeah. artery. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, that's why we've seen these stents fracture. I mean, you know, just a, a normal bare metal stent. We've all seen those fractures and, and uh, they, don't, they don't do too well. And DCBs are great yeah. if you get an ideal result, right? Exactly. You know, so 
Exactly. So is, let's go into that. I mean, the leave no, you, you mentioned it earlier, leave no metal behind. That was a big phrase that, you know, got into the whole adjunct of techniques such as DEB and, and even newer um, lithotripsy. So to you, what are some adjunctive techniques that don't involve uh, metal? Do you do atherectomy a lot? Yeah, yeah. But first, let me sort of make a comment that they'll leave no metal behind. Yeah. I, you know, I, I always use as reference, you know, one of my you know, well-known colleagues would say when doing tibia work, I never finish a case until I feel a pulse. Now, of course, you and I both know that, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, that's sure. not always possible. But, you know, as we discuss it, it makes a point. That should be your goal. Right. Yeah. yeah. You, you know, ideally you should never be the case. Pulse. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. And the same thing I think applies here, you know, by, you know, sort of having the expression, leave no metal behind, you know, we who speak about those things, we're trying to make the point that that's a, a goal. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. ideally, if you could get a perfect result uh, without having to put a scaffold, particularly a, you know, a slighted nitinol tube provocative scaffold, that was mm -hmm. a reasonable goal. It was never intended to be the be all and end all. Yeah, you know, like a, just, a, you know, a rule, basically. Right, right. And, you know, obviously it turns out that the majority of cases, you can't do that. But we still do everything we can you know, to try to optimize our results before we put a scaffold. So, uh, you know, we will certainly go in. We use a lot of IVIS, uh, first mm -hmm. of all, to confirm that we're H-aluminal or to see if we're subintimal. If you're subintimal, you're going to need a scaffold. Yeah. You know? And you're not going to change that, you know, recanalization uh, channel just to now a balloon scaffold. It's funny. I mean, it's funny you say that because I've seen, you know, um, some people when they do a whole subintimal recanalization of a long, long segment fempop, and uh, you know, sometimes they think, "Oh, can I just do drug coated balloon after that?" But you need a scaffold. I mean, that that's not going to stay open, you know. Right. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's a shame this is not a visual presentation of the podcast because I I just put together some cases just from last week. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we're doing now in the OBL you know, somewhere between seven and 10 PAD cases a week. And there were these two cases back to back. One was a long subintimal mm -hmm. SFA recanalization, but spontaneous reentry. And, you know, only by IVIS did we see a subintimal. We went ahead and actually there's a lot of calcium, hard to cross things out. Uh, and it was a lot of, a lot of remedial calcium. But we went ahead and did uh, some very gentle laser atherectomy to make some room even mm -hmm. though we were subintimal. Sure. And then we did our balloon. And you can see after that with IVIS, of course, it's essentially still 70% stenotic. Yeah. Although the angio looked great. The next case was a long SFACTO intraluminal recanalization. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be much different. But in fact, because of the burden of luminal plaque and luminal calcium in these cases, the recoil was just as bad. Yeah. yeah. So even though the angio looked amazing, the IVIS, you know, there was a large amount of recent notice. It's a little more spotty, you know, not yeah. the entire length, but still requiring long segment scaffolds. Yeah. And again, you know, those are the lesions. If you leave those behind and you don't, you know, they're, they're going to take your, all that work you just did down, you know, a, lo a yeah. lot of times. And I was so important to really understanding what we're doing, but I didn't answer your question. So, you know, we do the best we can. We, you know, determine it for intraluminal. We do believe in atherectomy and we choose our atherectomy based on black morphology. So there's no single atherectomy device that we use. And, you know, obviously it's a whole algorithm. We talk about why we choose yeah. what we choose. You know, we actually believe increasingly in thrombectomy, you know, so very often, I'm sure you've seen these cases, you know, they popularized yep. CTOs and you go forward with some sort of aspiration device, either incorporated in atherectomy or standalone thrombectomy. And now you create a lumen you know, yeah. to get rid of potential debris. After that, we vessel size appropriately with IVUS. We'll go ahead and do POBA 
unless it's a very short lesion. And if it looks great with Poba, now we'll go with DCP. Yeah. You know, if we know we don't have flow limiting dissections and things like that. Otherwise, we're looking at using some sort of biomimetic, uh, you know, stent platform for the most cases. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. That's, that's great. That's, I was just going to ask you your approach algorithm, but that sounds great. So say you, you need to put a scaffold. I mean, what, what the, the metal, the kind of metal scaffolds we have, the least metal, you know, that, that's going on is the TAC device, right? Uh, which has been great and, and really kind of just a, a cute, like tiny dissection flap. I, I, I've, I, I've seen tacks being used in a very high recoil situation, and that is obviously not the proper place to put a tack, correct? Right, I think you're right. Yeah, you know, I'm actually pretty hot on the tacks, but yeah. early on, like old technology, when we got it, we were trying to use it everywhere. Yeah. And, you know, as we've, you know, grown on our learning curve, now we realize it really is for vocal dissections. And it could be in, you know, inflow and outflow. It's also very good in, you know, certain, you know, sort of areas where you may be concerned about a stent, you know, as you get into the lower popliteal, of course, you know, you know, uh, uh, various osteo and things like that, that you may not want to compromise. But, and, un and like stents, we're not uncomfortable opening two sets of tacks if need be, but it's really is for focal, discrete dissection repair at the inflow or outflow or as a single solution. And it's really great, particularly when combined with DCB. I'm, I'm yep. sure you've seen some of the, you know, October three data. Um, <laughs> And they're running 95% primary patency out of the year. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. When used right, it's great. Um, you know, I personally had, have used it wrong where I, I thought maybe it was not that elastic of a, a lesion or a dissection. And then it's, you know, it, it, I was like, oh, that's, that's, but, you know, you li live and learn. And then if you use it right, it looks really good <laughs> and works really well. Do you typically, again, use IVIS and determine um, for tax? Uh, yeah, we're using IVIS in almost every case. I yeah, mean, good. It's, it's amazing how much we've learned, you know, now that we use IVIS and it's part of our optimized angioplasty routine. There's so much, inf I mean, I mean, we, we've talked about it endless times about how much more information IVIS gives. And, and so you always get more information and, and, and just need to learn how to interpret that, right? Yeah, that's true because, you know, it affects your endpoint. Right? You yeah. know, often you think you're done like, and you're shoot, happy I didn't and you're want ready to, to move on. Yeah, I didn't want to right. see that. <laughs> um, all right, so more more metal-heavy scaffolds. Really, the two stents that come to mind in the distal fem pop are, are Supera, which has been around for mm -hmm. quite a while, and a newly developed stent uh, that's available now, which is Biomimics. Other than those two, you know, I know Viabonds used to be used. I, I personally don't use Viabonds that much in the infrainguinal segment for just, you know, your typical CLI patients, but are you using uh, stent grafts? Yeah, I mean, again, like you, we don't use them as much as we used to, but then we'll use them, you know, sometimes you get patients who you want to avoid a lytic, aspiration doesn't work, you need a reline strategy, you know, something like that. Uh, you know, sometimes you get patients or other things have all failed, so probably yeah. something different, but, you know, certainly not our go-to. I think you're right. We're pretty much 50% now, probably Supera and uh, Biomimics. And we found that biomimic stent to be uh, a really, really great stent. Obviously, there's a lot of precision in deploying it. And although we like to think we're perfect with the uh, Supera. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's definitely more challenges uh, in it, you know. Totally. Well, good, good. So you're 50-50. The Supera, I mean, these stents, the Supera and biomimics are different. You know, we were talking about rigid nitinol tubes, right, in this area that just don't work. I mean, we had FDA-indicated life stent and whatnot, but that, that, that I used a couple of times and each time each fractured, I, I, I will not use those in that segment. 
But the Supera, you know, we've used for a long time and uh, I have yet to see a fracture, but it's hard to deploy. I mean, what's the design of the Supera and, and how is it delivered for our, for our listeners? Yeah, so the design of the Supera, as you know, it's a, it's a woven, you know, night and all, uh, you know, uh, stent. So it's sort of like a spring in a big pen, right? And, you know, obviously since night and all, it's got thermal uh, memory. The big thing with Superas is you need to be extraordinarily aggressive about vessel prep. I remember seeing Andre Schmidt spend 45 minutes on doing focal force angioplasty to Oof. kind of fully dilate one area, wow. you know, before he went ahead and deployed a Supera. And, you know, we try to be almost as rigorous as that. I mean, yeah. uh, you really have to go down there. You have to do some plaque modification. You can do that however you want. We tend to use atherectomy. And then you have to go ahead and, you know, dilate. And they say one-to-one, but often we're 1.1 or yeah. one millimeter bigger, you know, which is interesting because when we use these in the popliteal, we find we're using balloons that we would not normally have used okay. because we yeah. were, we'd be causing injury. I know um, exactly. Yeah. You almost think, like, okay, if I do cause an injury, it's okay. I'm, I'm already going to stent, right? So you're, right, you're, you almost, exactly. you're, you already have that plan. So it's okay. <laughs> right. You're already committed. You're down, you're down that road. So, yeah. and you know, you have to make sure you don't have any residual waste on the balloon uh -huh. as best as you can. It's very important. And I think, you know, there may be a role here for shockwaves too. Mm -hmm. So you get these very, very dense calcified. Totally. So you get now, as you said, a more elastic vessel. And once you get that vessel prep, well, then the deployment's much better. But, you know, it's a combination of forward uh, force on your front hand. And then, of course, you know, the thumb motion on your backhand. And if you get a cheat, you want to compress rather than elongate. Yep. And they have very nice pictures, you know, where you can sort of see the stent margins lining up like little soldiers. That's an optimal deployment. And, you know, it's a lot of work. We really like them, but it's definitely more work. On the other hand, it's very gratifying when you get a great result. Yeah. And, you know, I know uh, for the Diva OPC in that popliteal segment, they're above 85% primary patency out of the year. So. Oh, yeah. Good. And then, yeah, so vessel prep is so important. Sizing is important. I mean, that's where Ivis, you can't, you really can't just measure on Angio and say, okay, this is the appropriate size for a Supera. Sizing is when, and, yeah, that, that deployment takes a while, uh, but it is very gratifying when you have that and you're like, okay, all right, like, right. this is going right. to do well. So what makes, so, so this biomimic stent, we actually just got in our lab um, a couple months ago. Pretty interesting design. What, what makes the design different than other stents? Yeah, so the biomimic stent has this sort of central line, you know, along its uh, configuration. And therefore, and there are great videos of this, you know, as the biomechanics change in distal SFA pop region, it's made to accommodate that. It kind of rotates and curves and foreshortens, you know, to uh, really match what's happening physiologically in the individual. And as a result, you kind of maintain, say, swirling flow, but I kind of think of laminar or parabolic flow. And, you know, we all know that that's key. You know, if you get turbulent flow, that's when you get, you know, PMN rolling and all these other things, which lead to that phenotypic change in the smooth muscle cells and internal hypoplasia. But if you can maintain this swirling laminar flow or parabolic flow pattern, that in and of itself is antiproliferative. It leads okay. to the formation of a complement endothelium. So the structure itself promotes good healing and prevents internal hyperplasia. So you mentioned like this center line or a helical design. I, if, you, if you put the stent, you know, ex vivo deployed on a table, it, it almost looks like a sine wave, right? That's kind of... Mm -hmm what it looks like. And, it, and also it doesn't lay flat. It's a little bit, there's twists in it. Other than the laminar, laminar flow, is that supposed to, you know, mimic the same sort of um, crests and troughs of the, of the popliteal artery or whatnot when it 
compresses or that's not really the idea. The idea is that it can just shape to what it's needed. Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not sure if that was necessarily the idea in creating it. The idea was to create a helical flow pattern. But that being said, you know, when you look at models of, you know, cadaver models of SFA pop segments in flexion, they assume the exact same configuration yeah. as this, you know, kind of helical structure of the bottom mix set. So maybe it was chance or maybe there is a good engineering, but you know, what happens is when these stents are in and you compare the native arteries in the flex position, they assume the exact same, you know, anatomic configuration. So they're very well suited for that. And, and what about in a non-flex position? Is it, is it, is it causing any stress to the artery when it's supposedly straight? Or not really? Yeah, I mean, uh, no, not really. I mean, to tell you the truth, we're not really straight that often. Yeah. We're both sitting here. Right. Yeah, that's true. Bent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. Uh, we're, we're always I mean, walking, moving something. Or, yeah, yeah, you're right. Right, right exactly. So, I mean, uh, it does not seem to. I mean, if, you know, you've seen their Mimics 3D data now, which is out uh, three years, and they're over 75% primary, primary patency with a, a lesion length, which is longer than most studies. As a matter of fact, their primary patency rate at uh, three years is this, you know, essentially the same as alluvia, and yep. their uh, lesion length is slightly longer. It's about 12 and a half centimeters. Their freedom from clinically driven TLR is over 80%. So, you know, the idea of using drug delivery technology, you know, to get better patency is only true before you had these, you know, I guess third or fourth generation stents, which have comparable patency. Yeah, that's right. That's right. What about now... Uh, we talked about the delivery of Supera is a little hard. I, what's the delivery system to the biomimics? Is a, what, what do you do? Pin and pull. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Yeah. Not <laughs> even a wheel or anything, just standard pin and pull, which is, which is right. great, right? Yeah. I mean, you still want to get good vessel prep. And, you know, I said I'm 50-50 because in our population, we still get patients who have dense, dense calcification. Those dense, dense calcification, you know, circumferential calcification, they're still leaning more towards Sapera. But again, if you look at the, you know, the biomimics uh, data, I think 40 or 50% of those patients, or about 40%, had moderate calcification. So you can use it in calcified arteries, you know, quite well with the uh, vessel prep. Yeah, vessel. And the sizing, you know, Sapera, you want to size one-to-one. Is bio, is the biomimic scent more like you can oversize by one millimeter or, or do you still go one-to-one? No, the recommendation is you go one millimeter over. So, wow. I mean... Obviously, uh, I'm not putting seven millimeter stents in a, a, a vessel I'm not a dilated to six. That's probably because I'm over dilating the vessel. Yeah. The vessel is a five. I'm doing a lot of vessel prep and then I'm putting a six millimeter stent in. Got it. Got it. And, you know, fra- is a, you know I've never seen a supera fracture. And, in, in, you know, that thing, that thing does not want to fracture. I'm sure there has been, but I haven't seen it. Has, is, is the biomimics the same? Has, has, is there fractured reported in that segment or no? Yeah, essentially no fractures with the biomimics and great. Uh, very, very low rate with the Sapera. I actually just saw one two weeks ago, you know, a patient who really? had a Sapera in for eight oh, years man. or so, oh, something man. like that. And uh, there was actually fractured two spots. Hadn't seen that in a very long time. Ooh, that's, he must've been doing lots of jumping jacks or something. <laughs> that's, a, <laughs> that's tough. Um, it's actually, he was a truck driver. I, I asked him, I said, are you crouching down a lot or you know, what are you yeah. doing? You know, good job, you know, this <laughs> happened. So aside from that, one of my questions is going to be, you know, what lesions do you use Sapera for and biomimics? So you touched on it. You said, you know, potentially the heavy calcium that are elastic, you would maybe do Sapera to get that radial strength. Are there any other lesions that you would 
lean towards either stent or, or trying to go more towards one stent or the other? Yeah, I mean, so absolutely. So certainly, again, although we're perfect at every time, as we get lesions at approximate lots of the and osteum, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, or lesions where I need, you know, to be very precise landing before a big collateral, you know, which I mean, I want to compromise. I'm going to go ahead, almost always use the biomimic stack. You know, that's the precision of placing that. There's very, very little foreshortening and it's reliable. They're also interesting, and this is not talked about as much, cases where I just cannot get, you know, adequate vessel prep. I just can't, you know, I just can't. Dense yeah. calcium, I've yeah. done everything, you know, you know, it happens. In those cases, you know, once you elongate the supera, you definitely lose, you know, patency and you can't now go in and, and you know, You can't crack blast that. it. Yeah, no, it's, yeah. it's you're, you're right. done. <laughs> you're done, right? Yeah, that's it. Your, your hands are tied. So in those cases, you know, we will go ahead and uh, also, you know, it's dense calcium. Uh, lean towards using a biomimic stent. You know, even if we could then go ahead and sort of reline to a you know, crack and pave or I guess pave and crack you know, strategy in that case. Yeah, describe that more, the crave and pack. You, you actually stent and then crack it after? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, we're talking about patients where my normal balloons, which go to 20 atmospheres, you know, have not really done it. So there's cases that are coming back. It's just a really flow-limiting lesion. And I'm going to have to take out a Conquest 40 type of thing, you know? Yeah. It doesn't happen too often, but, you know, you can do that all you want inside a elongated Zepera and you're not going to change the result. Exactly. You get a perforation, but you won't get the result. Yeah. True. You know, so you you can change the configuration with the biomimic set. And that's, you know, doesn't warrant too much discussion because it's a less common scenario. But I think what I want to say is we don't necessarily avoid the biomimic set in circumferential dense calcium. Okay. And as we get good vessel prep, we may want to use it more. One, in the you know, lab, it's very cost-effective for us. The uh, lengths are uh, good. The reliability and deployment is, uh, is very good. So that's pretty good if you think about it. I mean, There's a lot of good pluses. I mean, you know, uh, in our experience so far, we've been pretty happy. I mean, essentially, essentially, it's new experience. So I'm looking forward to see how my patients do. But it's it's like, whoa, I, I was able to stent that 20-centimeter segment like that, whereas... I'd still be stenting with the interwoven stent, you know, because it takes so long to deploy. Right, exactly. Now, what about distal, let's go distal to the pop, trifurcation disease. Have you been using this? I know it's off-label, but have you been, since it's five millimeters and you can oversize, have you been using it in the TPT or doing sort of, you know, crazy revas of, of kissing uh, coronary DSs barreling into the stent? Have you had experience doing that um, type of work with this stent yet. Were you watching our, our, our uh, ISID live cases? No, I was not. I was not. Was that what you did? <laughs> oh, yeah. It sounds like something like that. <laughs> I love Crazy. I love a kissing coronary and barrel right. into a stent. <laughs> That's You're right. Crazy recanalization, culotting stents one into another, you know, coming across native arteries that have been failed bypasses and things yeah, like that. Yeah, love so, it. You know. Love it. Those, those, those <laughs> yeah. make me so happy when I get to do that. Yes, right. Uh, um, but yeah, how's your experience with that, with uh, with the biomimics? Yeah, so we've used the biomimics down into the P3 segment and a little bit of the tibia perineal trunk. Okay. Although, not that much, you know, okay. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah, uh, in that jail, segment. Right. You know, we've, uh, you know, done some tax and of course we use some coronary DES if the anatomy uh, allows it, you know, we are doing, again, a lot of IVIS, a lot of atherectomy, a lot of angioplasty. But, you know, if we're going to do kind of some sort of kissing technology there or collotting, usually it's going to be off-label use of coronary. Got it. And, you know, back in the day, I don't do it as much, but when drug-coated balloons were pretty popular, 
sometimes we would do a stent and we would actually combine like a a, a a bear stent and we would maybe put some drug on the distal ends with plasti, kind of like a combo approach. Do you do you, have you done that at all, or do you do you believe in that? I, I haven't done it in a while now, especially when uh, DEBs kind of went down a little bit. But when the one before, I, I definitely had tried that. Yeah. Well, you know, that's the debate SFA approach. You know, uh, Dr. Seablis wrote that paper, and you know, the intended take home was that uh, bare metal stent plus DCB is the same as DES. Mm-hmm. You know, and they showed pretty good patency, although they're about seventy five percent at two years. I think it was very close. So that's a reasonably good strategy. You know, we've not been using that, and it's interesting. I mean, obviously, like everybody else, you know, after the Jaha article, you know, yeah. we kind of pulled a little bit away from DCB. But I think the vast, you know, majority of data shows that DCBs are safe in terms of vital statistics. So we've now kind of incorporated them again. You know, we'll use DCBs very comfortably, even in the outpatient lab for relatively short, you know, the intermediate length lesions. We can get away with sort of one DCB, we have a perfect result after vessel prep and POBA without dissection of flow limitation. However, you know, we're also very comfortable because of the excellent results of the biomimic stent yeah. and Sapera platform, you know, to sort of wait and see, do surveillance, and if need be, come back and use DCB as a secondary technology. Got it, got it, got it. Not the other way around, do DCB first, then come back, and if it doesn't work, then, then stent. Which right. is kind of where the leave leave no metal behind stent kind of concept, right? Right, right, right. I mean, you know, as a primary approach, we'll get those lesions where DCB is perfect, right? Yeah. You know, just the vessel on angio and ivis is completely normal those after you've done your probe with DCB. And that's great. I love those that. Are, those yeah. are the ones that are durable with the leave no metal. Absolutely. Right. Exactly. So future tech. People have talked about absorbable scaffolds. Are those ever, you know, in your experience, I know you've, you've, you have your hands in a lot of things. Are you feel like that's going to be a viable option in the future or that's kind of a, a vanishing uh, goal? Yeah. And well, obviously, uh, below the knee, we participate in Saval. We participate in uh, you know, Life BTK and we participate in Stand, which is micromedical, you know, which is sort of the supera of the uh, tibial arteries, yep. right? Again, it's sort of a, it's a woven night and all stent. So, yeah, I mean, look, those technologies, and, you know, the tibial circulation, as you know, we don't have other great options. True. You can get in the mid and distal uh, mm-hmm. tibial arteries. We've used tax in that segment yeah. because you can't use really expandable stents, which is subject to plastic deformation and crush. Mm-hmm. But we definitely could use some other options. I do think there's probably going to be a role for bioabsorbable platforms or other stents in general below the knee. Above the knee? I don't know. I mean, you, you know, your value proposition now uh, would have to exceed what we're seeing now with these third and fourth generation biomimetic sense. That's going to be hard to do. That's hard. And I mean, we're at 80, yeah. what, 85%, 75 to 85% in three years, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you know, the likelihood that we're going to gain much uh, utilizing potentially very expensive technologies is not certain at all. Yeah. Anything else you want to kind of discuss about this distal fempop? segment anything you know we didn't cover just now we covered a lot but yeah something you know people operators maybe early operators or people who are getting more experience about this segment what to do obviously ivis is huge in your practice and should be in in, in everyone doing you know um high level pad any tips and tricks that you you want to tell our listeners yeah you know particularly for early operators you know you should probably get comfortable doing some of these sort of flexion angiograms 
Hmm. You know, we don't routinely do that yeah. unless we're treating popliteal artery aneurysms. It's funny, every time you do a popliteal artery aneurysm, you do this to see where to land your grafts and make sure you don't have any kinking. But we don't do it for an atherosclerotic case. Yeah. That's you know, right? Yeah, that's a great point. Right. Yeah, I mean, so it's not a bad idea until you get comfortable with these things and understand your patient and where that compression is occurring. After you put that stent, you know, go ahead, do that flexion uh, angiogram, and you might learn something really valuable in terms of, you know, whether you have enough metal, you need more metal, you need less metal, you know, um, and how you can optimize your results. So. That's great, actually. I, I'm going to incorporate that tip in my own practice. I, You're right. I, I don't do that many flexion um, views unless I have to, but doing it more routinely, I'll probably learn a lot more. Right. Right now you do it when you have a talk coming up. Yeah, so you take exactly. That. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to do it tomorrow. <laughs> John, it's been great having you on. I mean, this is, this is definitely, it's exciting to have new technology. I mean, with our, you know, non-metal options, atherectomy, lithotripsy, DEB, and um, having new stents available to us like uh, biomimics and with Supera, I mean, it's, it's nice to have a lot of options to treat these patients that, you know, otherwise may lose their foot or leg. So thanks a lot. Thanks for being on our show. I mean, we, uh, we really enjoy all the stuff that you're doing and, and, and uh, changing the field of PAD. So keep doing what you're doing. We love it. No, I appreciate it. It's very kind. And, uh, you know, what you're doing is also spectacular. I mean, uh, you really have a very popular platform uh, that I admire everything you've done and I can't thank you enough for allowing me to talk to you this morning. No, thanks. It's all because of our great guests. So thank you so much. And <laughs> and uh, thanks to everyone. Uh, thanks to our sound engineer, Caleb, today and, and uh, everyone else at Backtable. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, Brian Hartley. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. And newsletter by Lauren Fang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.